Hey, this is Jonathan, and it is New Year's Day. But from my vantage point at this moment, it still looks and feels very Christmassy because I'm looking out from the window of my flat in the center of a European capital, and it looks very European with the slanted roofs of the apartment blocks that are lightly dusted with snow and the twinkling lights in the distance of a pedestrian boulevard. And today I did a bit of a repurposing of a piece of content that I did on life hacking self-control. And I put together a, came to, I believe, about a hundred minutes long presentation, very exhaustive presentation on self-control and discipline for the New Year's resolutions that everyone is going to be taking on, that everyone is getting so excited about right now. But this podcast is going to be about something quite different. Live fast, die young. This podcast is going to serve as a little bit of an MP3-coded eulogy to someone that I was quite close to for quite a while that passed away. And... I think that I am able to derive some instructional value from both our relationship and from him leaving the world prematurely. If anybody who knew Patrick, who I'm going to be speaking about, is listening to this, I'll advise you right now, if you have particularly thin skin or sensitivity about his death, don't listen to this. But if you are going to listen to it, please listen to it in its completion. So an old friend of mine died recently. We were business partner roommates and, at times, rivals. Patrick was a real dichotomy of inner demons, vices, insanity, and redeeming features. Work ethic, competitiveness, creativity, masterful persuasive ability, and ambition. I learned a lot from him. His body was found in his vehicle in Florida, and it was a non-violent death. He was not in imminent danger of death from chronic illness, so when it happened, everyone was really surprised. But not me. I saw this day coming for him over half a decade ago, and I became even more certain of it just a few years ago, living fast. About 10 years ago, we were doing what everyone who knew us will probably remember us for, which was partying at a nightclub. That night, we were rolling in a brand new Maserati that the company that we worked for had insanely bought. And as the ladies' night crowd was spilling out of the entrance of one of the ultra lounges in downtown Denver, Patrick had illegally parked that sexy Italian beast of a car 
in front, right in front. An attractive older woman posed with a car and Patrick invited her to sit in the red leather racing seats of the car for a photo. The car was idling and Patrick encouraged the woman to rev the engine and the exhaust snarled like an angry, exotic cat, making quite the scene. At that moment, a cop approached, assumed the car was the woman's, closed her door for her, and ordered her to move the car immediately, which she promptly did. Me and Patrick were dismayed to see this woman, whose name we didn't even know, drive off into the night with the $125,000 car. Luckily, she just drove around the corner and parked the car, though. We ran after her and we got our very expensive car back. Patrick invited her to after party with us and three other totally random girls we didn't know at all in a yellow car followed us back to our friend's apartment nearby. Yes, these are the sorts of things that happen when you're driving a car that costs as much as a house around the nightlife district of, well, downtown Denver at least. Back at the apartment, me and the woman ended up in a bedroom and started having sex. I kept hearing the others rudely peeking in at us. Finally, balls deep, Patrick and my other friend burst into the bedroom, started cheering me on, so I promptly withdrew and kicked my friends out. Another story going with the theme of living fast. Another crazy night with Patrick did not result in such a desirable climax. We had been drinking vodka all night from a friend's bottle service table at the church nightclub in downtown Denver, which if you know Denver at all, you, you've likely been there. Maybe you also have some, some crazy memories and stories from it. Patrick had foolishly driven his pimped out Honda Accord to the club. Leaving the clubbing district, Patrick decided to get cigarettes and pulled into a yellow, taped-off gas station. As he pulled into a parking spot, several security guards, or cops, I'm really not sure, it was dark, I was drunk, they approached our car, and Patrick freaked out and screeched out of the spot. As he did, the men broke out three windows of our car with batons. As he peeled out of the gas station, he clipped a girl's Jetta's back bumper, and a couple of guys in a white Jeep took up hot pursuit of us. We raced around downtown, running red lights, trying to get away from them, and the two vigilantes pursued us on the freeway for about 25 minutes. Eventually, we lost them by taking an off-ramp and killing our lights. He had serious legal troubles the entire time I knew him. I remember once when we were business partners receiving a frantic phone call from him that he was being pulled over by the cops and expected to be thrown in jail for an uncertain amount of time. Imagine my surprise when he walked in the front door of our apartment that very evening with a cute black girl. It turned out he convinced the judge to let him out of jail and had managed to pull this girl who was being released at the same time from jail. Who picks up a girl from jail? 
Only, only person I've ever known of to do such a thing. A divorce. After too many episodes of his insanity and impulsiveness, I made the decision to end our business partnership. He was very cruel to me. He was just ruthless about pointing out and mocking my faults and weaknesses during our business partnership and time as roommates, which, by the way, is a super bad idea. Never move in with your business partners. As convenient as it may seem, it's not worth the ongoing disturbance and domestic tranquility. Whenever people ask me about business partners, my response is that it's almost never worth it. Giving another person 50% of the earnings of your business forever. I wouldn't even consider it unless the business partner was going to like 10x the earnings of the business. And even then there's probably some way to structure it as a strategic or affiliate partnership instead of a marriage of business and profits. He was better at almost everything that mattered in the business than me. And he let me know it with yelling and constant pressure, which was super stressful, but at the same time gave me serious impetus to improve myself. And being on the receiving end of the Steve Jobs style of uh, constant negative feedback management, for my personality at least, made me better. It became an increasingly abusive relationship. The one genuinely abusive relationship I've, I've, I've been in in my life. And one night I had a dream that I killed him with a knife. And that was a clear sign that I needed to move on, whatever the cost. We were kind of going different directions anyways with the business. So I just signed over my ownership of the company to him, making sure to spill no ink on a non-compete agreement. He ended up being more successful than me, going on to own a nightclub and live in a nicer condo than me. And if you check out the article version of this blog, I've actually got little videos, they're not great videos, but I've actually got little videos touring both his condo and my condo. They were, they're pretty swanky places. While my competitive side was naturally a bit bitter that my ex-business partner was so successful, mostly I was happy for him and we got along well for being ex-business partners. We actually hung out from time to time. The last time I saw him in person, he was test driving a brand new BMW sports sedan, which we raced through the winding roads of the Colorado Rockies. From the moment we split up as business partners, I had the odd thought, though, that I would ultimately end up more successful because I would outlive him. Stress versus vice. This guy was a case study of exactly how a high-performance entrepreneur should not manage their stress. He drank a lot. About once a week, he would get really drunk. 
He smoked cigarettes voraciously. He had a pretty consistent cocaine habit that was moderate most of the time, but occasionally he would get really crazy and nosebleeds would ensue. His diet was just whatever was convenient and easy. He would yo-yo between intense workaholism interspersed with periods of over-the-top hedonism. He took work hard, play hard to just a level that I haven't seen before. He would yell quite a bit. A lot of great entrepreneurs seem to channel their anger into productivity, which he definitely did, but he also just had a lot of excess rage. A few years ago, I wrote a letter of recommendation to a judge who was presiding over one of his cases, and I did it mostly as a favor to the defense attorney that was representing him, who was also a, a good friend of mine. And in the letter, I, I urged that Patrick be recommended or that I was hoping that this might be a, uh, a reflection point for him. And I was urging him to start doing a mindfulness practice. And I really don't think he ever took my advice. On the desirability of insanity, he was a natural seducer who almost always had a main girlfriend and a side chick, or three. In pop psychology, you hear these platitudes about women being naturally attracted to bad boys just because they're so confident. Spending so much time around Patrick disabused me of this notion. Many women deeply crave insanity. They masochistically desire the emotional roller coaster. He dated a lot of strippers and nightclub cocktail waitresses, but also some, some pretty classy, more professional women who were equally indulgent of his bad behavior. Patrick proved that you can get away with doing the most depraved things to a woman as long as you do not bore her. That is the cardinal sin when dealing with women. He was very conscious of the tremendous liability that his vices were to his success in business. He would quit booze and cigarettes for weeks at a time, but they would call him back. Like many naturally attractive men, his real weakness was women. His self-destructive benders were almost always a result of his chasing skirts that really wanted to party. Hard to stay sober when you're surrounded by women who want to party. On male invincibility. There's a self-destructive certainty with the male personality type that is highly competent and really impulsively hedonistic. He'll get himself into a world of trouble and pain because of bad decisions made pursuing momentary pleasure, but at the same time he's so competent at making money and has the social capital that he can't always pay the cost for his bad decisions. 
Despite their bad decisions, life keeps rewarding them, which is insidiously deceptive to the male ego. He will convince himself that he's bulletproof and that the regular rules of society just don't apply to him. A less competent man will eventually hit rock bottom because of bad decisions, recognize their inability to make good decisions in a crucial life area, and get help. Figure out how to outsource their decision-making in a particular domain. For example, I smoked for about five years, like smoke cigarettes, uh, and a very attractive woman gave me the initial motivation to quit, not by supporting me, but by rejecting me. A mutual lady friend of mine had for weeks been telling her friend, a very attractive Korean-American girl, all about me, and she was, according to my friend, quite interested. So, opportunity. Our mutual friend set up a night out at a club for all of us, and we hit it off royal and had really sexy chemistry on the dance floor. Unfortunately, she, she saw me outside sneaking a few puffs of a cigarette, and I remember this really disappointed look in her face, and the night ended with a kiss on the cheek, and she was pretty unresponsive to my follow-up calls and text messages. If I were a more attractive man, a more competent seducer, maybe she would have put up with my nasty habit, as many women do, but I wasn't. Because of my incompetence, in my mind I framed it that my bad habit of smoking had cost me the opportunity of having a super cute Korean girlfriend, which was all the motivation I needed to quit smoking. Come to think of it, that was really the turning point in my mid-twenties that led me to developing a real passion for healthy living. So thanks to that Korean-American girl, wherever she is in the world, there's the temptation to look her up on Facebook, but just not necessary. Just put a a uh, token of gratitude out there to the universe for, for that rejection. Latin America. When I became more certain that Patrick was going to die was when he started spending time in Latin America. He had a nice place in San Jose, Costa Rica. That's the capital of Costa Rica. And I attached to this, actually, uh, another video. He recorded a video a tour of his place, and yeah, it looked like awesome place. He lived in one of the nicest condos in the, probably in that, that country. So I myself, I lived in Latin America for three years. I highly recommend you check out the podcast I did. It's quite a bit more entertaining than this one about three months of sobriety in Medellin, Colombia, South America's number one vice city. So I lived, spent quite a bit of time in that part of the world, and I have great love for that culture. But those countries are very bad places for people like Patrick who have impulsive personalities. Latin cultures are all about the hedonistic imperative. You're expected to party with total abandon, and all decisions made while under the influence are for 
giveable. If you have a normal social life in a Latin country, you will be a functional alcoholic. In my time in Latin America, I knew a couple of people that simply partied so hard that they ended up in the ground. So when I saw Patrick traveling there frequently, I thought to myself, he's probably going to die. Self-interest. Now we all have influences which are like people whose books we read or gurus whose teachings we follow, but this is just scratching the surface. For comparison, if you are really interested in a country, you can read its entire Wikipedia page. You can watch a bunch of YouTube videos about it. You can study its language. You can even use social networking websites to meet and chat with people there. But you won't really know the country the way you would if you actually went there. Not even close. Living in the country, you'll discover that the headlines about it misrepresent it. You'll stumble across cultural idiosyncrasies. You'll identify the modicum of truth in the stereotypes about the country and the people. You'll observe very subtle ways that things are done there that are profoundly foolish or wise. Similarly, in personal development, I think there's great instructional value in having people in our lives that really get results by doing things counterintuitively. And that's what Patrick was for me. He broke all the pop psychology and self-help rules, yet still got laid and got paid like crazy because he's what's called a dark triad man. And he was unapologetically self-interested. So your family, your church, pop culture, the educational institutions, and the self-help books don't tell you that being self-interested gets results, especially brazen, declared self-interest. You really don't want to be shy about it. In modern society, where we are so smothered with fake altruism, moral self-aggrandizement, and virtue signaling, honest self-interest is very attractive. However, looking at his wake of destruction, business partnerships torn asunder, broken-hearted women, wrecked cars, broken bottles, aborted pregnancies, breached contracts, and legal cases, he obviously took it self-interest. He took it too far. He pushed self-interest well over the line of what's ethical and decent into the territory of predation and brutality. Die young. Again, I don't know specifically how he died. His parents have not yet released those details. I don't know if they ever will, but I think it's pretty safe to assume that his propensity for vice is mostly to blame. In your 30s is when your habits start catching up with you. Throughout your 20s, you can succumb to vice daily. You can drink and chase girls all night long, every night if you want, and you'll look and feel about the same. 
or you can choose the hustle. You can channel all of that youthful vigor into your work, spending your nights and weekends slaving away on the computer or telephone, building something meaningful. And unless you get really lucky, you won't be that much more well off than your peers who work the standard 40 hour weeks and spend their weekends blowing their paychecks at the bar. But in the third decade is when our decisions really start adding up. That fun party guy who didn't practice ethical hedonism, you're going to want to look that up, is, that guy is really starting to look like a loser compared to the person who has some savings, financial freedom, and a thriving career or business. And that hot girl who used her sexual market value to ride the carousel of cosmopolitan fabulousness through her 20s is in her 30s really starting to wonder where all the good guys went and is profoundly discontent compared to that plain religious girl who got married at 22 and has three kids now and as for Patrick, he died at, at just around 30 years old. In a weird way, his death is satisfying to me. Obviously, I'm not happy he died, but it relieves some cognitive dissonance I had seeing how life rewarded him so handsomely for bad behavior. His premature expiration hints at karmic justice. And as the saying goes, some people's lives are merely meant to serve as warnings to others. And to almost everybody, that's all, that his, that's all the meaning his life can serve. Now, I hope it serves that meaning for you, as it does for me. A resolution, as it is January 1st, and tis the season for resolutions. Pop psychology has told us not to give people advice, that it's almost totally useless to give people advice unless they ask us for it. And there's some truth to this. But I resolved to be more frank in 2017 with the people close to me. Our most intimate relationships should be strong enough that we can apply some pressure on the other people, the people that are close to us, to be better. That we can make the people close to us a little bit uncomfortable to get them out of the self-destructive cycles that they are so ensconced in and unable to quit repeating patterns that take them to a, a bad place. If someone close to Patrick, which I wasn't at the time of his death, I was separated we were separated by uh, continents and vast oceans but if someone close to patrick had really put pressure on him to apply this amazing work ethic he had to getting his vices under control he would likely still be alive and on the path to being a better person with patrick it may be would not have made a difference. But I bet there's someone in your life whose life will surely be shortened and worsened but for your application of pressure 
to be better.